Welcome to Neo Academia, where you'll hear real conversations with trailblazing thinkers outside the ivory tower. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and this week I invited evolutionary biologist, writer, and co-host of the Dark Horse podcast, Heather Hying, to have a discussion about science, of course, and academia, of course. Heather is well known for voicing her thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic and for issues relating to diversity and inclusion efforts. What I hope you get to see here is a different side of Heather, one not so embroiled in controversy, but still thinking critically because that is what she sets out to do. Today, we focus specifically on what it means to do science now in the past and how we educate those who will do it in the future. Heather, like all my guests, is one of those people who I couldn't wait to get in a setting where we could talk candidly about how she handles criticism, her hopes, her guesses. I want to bring scholars and thinkers like Heather closer to you so you can take them in good faith, realize they're human, and evaluate their arguments and philosophies rather than the sound bites or their follower count or supposed authority or lack thereof. So if you value this, I hope you'll consider supporting Neo Academia by subscribing and maybe upgrading to a premium Substack subscription, where you'll get even more of my thoughts and my guests in behind-the-scenes footage, monthly rabbit hole newsletters, and much more. Season 2 of Neo Academia is also possible thanks to Big Nerve, the idea tournament game for innovative thinkers. I've been working with Big Nerve to help develop a community of creative people who enjoy playing with ideas and getting better at combining rational argument with creative imagination. Their goal is simple. They want to recognize and fund brilliant idea people like us and create a new profession called innovators. They do this by providing a platform for catalysts like me to ask engaging questions that creative innovators like you can answer. The answers to these questions are then rated for their creativity and points are awarded for each aspect of the game. At the end of the month, the idea tournaments pay out to the top 33% of participants and scouts who are building their team of innovative thinkers. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Yeah, I don't know why I said that. The founders of Big Nerve have worked hard on creating a game that will elevate innovative thinkers and their ideas. Now to join my team, you'll have to click on the Big Nerve question in the Theory Gang newsletter, where each episode I'll design a special question relevant to the guest and discuss. All right, let's get into this episode. Now, listen to the very end so you can hear the big nerve question, and maybe you'll hear some clues as to how I'm thinking about my answer to the question. So I don't really do an introduction. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) I just, you know, I do a little preamble about it on my sub stack, and, you know, you're one of these people who I think, for better or worse, has has become pretty well known recently. So (laughs) speaking of that. I know why you were kind of forced into starting your pursuit as what could probably be described as a public intellectual, but also an independent scholar. So starting back from Evergreen, we won't rehash all of that. But I met Brett in probably 2018 when we were in Portland and I was working on the March for Science and we needed a keynote. And I said, let me ask Brett Weinstein. They were like, oh, no. But I met him anyways. And so I knew of you you know, in that capacity. But in recent years, what have you, what's, what's your goal? What are you trying to do here? And how did you start trying to do that? Wow. What is, what is my goal? What am I trying to accomplish? That's a, that's a big question. I think, I think it's going to be multivariate, the answer. So I'll say, I I will go back actually just a tiny bit farther into, into history than, than you started and say, at the point that Brett, my husband and I were happily you know, lovingly teaching at Evergreen, being professors with students whom we adored in an experimental educational model that we adored. 
but we're definitely beginning to see the cracks around the edges and, you know, occasional really loud cracks on the ice we were standing on going like, oh, what is happening here? We were also thinking, okay, we, we really love being able to basically spread the ability to, to think evolutionarily to people who would not otherwise have access to it. And we were, I think, wildly successful, both of us individually and also together when we taught together. But scaling issues being what they are and just the particular student-faculty ratio being what it was at Evergreen, that meant reaching 25, sometimes 50 at the top 75 students at a time. And that was amazing. And I still, you know, I still know many of those students. But even back before the, the public blow up <laughs> that catapulted Brett and then me sort of into the public eye, we were trying to figure out, like, how can we do this more broadly? You know, is there a way to, to get the evolutionary word out in, you know, in the modern era? You know, can, can, is, there, is it possible to do something like, you know, frankly, like Dawkins did with the selfish gene in 1976? but modernized both for our new understandings and also for the new world in which we live, the media in which we live. So we weren't, although I had imagined, you know, I'll probably be a professor until the end of my career, we were also trying to, trying to reach out into the world and see what we could do. So all of that said, at the point that COVID hit, I at least, and Brett, didn't see what came coming. And I think it's a very, very rare person who saw what actually came coming in advance. And we thought, oh, okay, well, there's a lot of chaotic, confusing, internally inconsistent information coming out of the, these public health agencies, many of which I had, you know, I had a sort of an informal relationship with. Like I had consulted the CDC often throughout my graduate work when I was traveling to places uh, with, it's got this species of malaria, but not that, which kind of prophylaxis should I be on? Which of these vaccines should I take, et cetera? And so, you know, I, I felt like, oh, I actually know something both about the public health side of this apparatus and also about the academic side for sure, having worked, for instance, at the academic grants office before I went to grad school and knowing just how much, just how much perverse incentives there are in academic funding and scientific funding. But you know, most of the point, we had the ability to look at the suddenly just plethora of papers that were coming out, you know, being, being just uploaded to the preprint servers all the time, and begin to try to make sense of what was happening and, and, and try to do so in a compelling way that, was, that would enable people to then go and do the same thing for themselves. You know, we weren't expecting everyone who listened to us to go onto the preprint servers, but one of the wonders of the preprint servers, unlike, you know, Elsevier behind, you know, with all the papers behind a paywall was it's all, it's all available if you want it. And one of the things, one of the things that I ended up feeling was truly important for me as a professor was empowering students to recognize even students, especially students, maybe without the class privilege that lands people on the footsteps of Harvard and Stanford Many of the students who we had had really no background at all. Like effectively, they hadn't had educations because the public, the public school system had failed them so badly. And so their assumption, many of them, when I would drop them into the primary literature was, if I don't understand it, it's because I'm not smart enough. Mm -hmm. And what I would often, I think, successfully teach them was maybe, very occasionally, more often, 
It's that you don't have enough of the background information to interpret what you're reading. But also, and this is the thing that, didn't see, that they didn't see coming at all, sometimes you're not understanding it because it's been written in such a way so as not to be understood. And yes. that was sometimes intentionally, sometimes um, the author doesn't, doesn't want to be understood because he or she is kind of obscuring something. Sometimes because they literally don't know themselves what they're doing. And so treating the literature as this, as this authority that if you don't understand it, that's a problem with you was something that I worked hard to reverse as, as, a, as a meme in the brains of my students. And so I think that actually was informing a lot of what I was thinking, and I suspect Brett as well, as we began doing these live streams with Dark Horse early in COVID. It's like, no, if you are, if you are having this sort of spidey sense that you're getting inconsistent information from the authorities, I'm not telling you, therefore, distrust all authorities. What I'm telling you is, Trust your instincts enough to chase down why they're making the claims that they're making and then try to go back to first principles as much as possible. And from the very beginning with COVID, we were being told by the so-called experts, no, 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 don't do that. Think not for yourself. Trust us. We got this. And they didn't, right? <laughs> they right. clearly did Right. Well, and I, th I think that's, it's so nice to hear you say that because I think what you just said, I don't think people realize that's what your goal is. Maybe, maybe, because I think people either love you guys for that or they vilified you as criminals almost who have, you know, taken trust away from science. And and I've I've heard both sides of this. And before you came on, I was asking my following, what kind of questions would you want me to ask? And they had a lot of opinions because I have I have a very weird following. I have like very conservative people libertarian people. I have Marxists. It's weird. And I think it's, it's the, the key element is people who are critically rational. And, and I appreciate that about them. So from the left, the argument and the question for you was, how could you be okay with putting out misinformation? If, mm -hmm. if you're wrong about something, if you speculate about something and you're wrong about it, because you guys are very critical of, of things that come out. And I have heard you, you know, make corrections at the beginning of your podcast as much as I think you can. But this is a pervasive environment we're in where it's like, you can't be wrong. You're not allowed to be wrong. You, you cannot actually conjecture. You have to follow the prescribed path. So to hear you be wrong, even if you are, I'm like, I don't know, I'm rooting for you because more people need to be. And I think... I mean, I, I think the idea that this is not the moment where you can risk being wrong is at the heart of so many of the errors that we're making societally. Yep. It, it presumes that someone actually already has access to the whole truth, the complete truth, the absolute truth. And even if, even if we presume that everyone is actually acting in good faith for the best interests of everyone, which we know is not true, but even if we presume that, we, this is a changing environment, you know, even if it's just that the virus is evolving, which it is, which, you know, which it will continue to do, what we currently think is true is not necessarily true. This is, frankly, a facile error that, again, was one that I, I used to work on with my students. And, you know, again, I, I loved an environment in which I knew my students well enough that I could tell them, no, that's not, that's not an accurate portrayal of how it is that we do science. Here's why. And they never mistook that for, and I think you're a bad person. It was never that, right? It was, hey, we're in a relationship in which I'm here with, you know, with a background 
to hopefully inform you of how it is to, you know, reveal to you through through example and also through, you know, reading and, you know, all, you know, discussion and all of this, but also just through you watching me wrestle with ideas and sometimes come back to you, the students, and now the audience and say, ah, that thing that we talked about, that wasn't right. Here's how I know. Here's how I found out. And sometimes it's someone told me and now I see where my logic was wrong. And sometimes mm -hmm. it is, oh, everything that I was basing that on, it turns out was hinging on an assumption that I had wrong. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's why I refer to trying to go back to first principles as much as possible. So if the people who are trying to make a go of it, like make sense of their world, aren't allowed to think for themselves, and they're only allowed to take as God's honest truth the, the stuff that we're getting from on high, from the people who declare themselves science, but that's not how science works, then we have no ability to think for ourselves, right? And mm -hmm. at this point, I think everyone can acknowledge that what we are being told by the CDC, by the WHO, by the various governments, you know, everything from municipal to regional to state and provincial to federal, to the various granting agencies, some of the scientists involved in some of the research that almost certainly produced the work that ended up, you know, releasing this virus on the world. Why are those guys the arbiters of truth? And by the way, that's not how that works. Like, if, you know, if they really did know all of the things, then they were lying to us about other stuff because there's no way for them to have known what they claimed to have known at the time that they knew it. And, you know, this is one of the objections to the vaccine rollout, right? I really wish that the mRNA vaccines were safe and effective. What we know for sure is that at the point that they told us these are safe and effective, they couldn't have known that. Right. Therefore, you have to take it on yourself and say, well, okay then. They are not telling me the truth. I don't know why they're not telling me the truth. I don't know if they don't know they're not telling me the truth, but they're not. So I need to figure out what I can in order to make my own decision. Well, I think it's because this really isn't about science at this point. And that's where I stepped out of the COVID stuff. I mean, honestly, I did. I kind of, I, I stepped away from it. As soon as I made a comment about the, about a lab leak hypothesis that logically, you know, makes sense. I had scientists from all over just basically doing everything that they do, do to you. Do, oh, don't be, don't be talking to her. Don't, do not associate with this person. And I found that to be scarier than being wrong about the lab leak about I'm like, I'd rather be wrong about this than tell someone not to pursue it. That's the scariest thing of all is taking science on authority. It's the end of science. It's the end of science. And I mm -hmm. think that's why right, wrong, or indifferent, you know, even if the worst critics are right about you, I'm still on your side because we have to have science. That's the only way we understand what's going on in this world. Otherwise everything falls apart. It's the best system we've got. And it's inelegant. And right. it inherently leads to wrong turns and dead ends. It and has you to. have to backtrack. And mm -hmm. what we see from those who are speaking on behalf of science and tell us to follow that science, but not actual science, is a refusal to acknowledge mistakes, to say, ah, that thing, that thing wasn't right. Therefore, we're going to go back to, to base. We're going to go back to the last place in this you know, decision tree at Forked and say, what was the assumption that caused us to go down that route? So that going forward, it's always about the future, right? Like going forward, how is it that we can have the greatest chance of not making those mistakes in the future?
Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't, in, in a world of incomplete information, which we always will have, how is it that you can balance, you know, yourself and the collective risks and benefits of the various choices you're making? The answer is not going to be take someone's word as if it is that of God. Like that, that, that is what the scientific revolution, the scientific worldview, if you will, and it's not exactly a worldview, but that, that is supposed to be a rejoinder to a religious worldview, right? And w- one thing that I, I recently was considering is it's fascinating to me that Dark Horse has a considerable religious audience, you know, people who mm-hmm. sort of put up with our non-believing nature, our secular nature, our explicitly evolutionary take on absolutely everything. And I think somehow, and I I don't know exactly how we get here, but I think somehow uh, many among the religious have sort of taken something on faith at base that, that I don't, right? And that, you know, generally those in science don't, although it's not entirely the case. But then that frees them to say, okay, now what? Like my authority is not the people in the government. My authority is this other authority over here, and that has freed me. And I think it feels wildly dangerous, frankly, to the other, I insist on calling them pseudo-liberals, you know, secularists among the scientists to have, frankly, actual scientists doing actual scientific thinking and say, yeah, I actually am not responding to any authority. It's not Mm -hmm. that I reject you, but I accept you. It's that that's not the basis on which I try to understand the world, not by being told what to think. Right. Yeah, I think the Christian connection is really interesting as well. And I've noticed this. I just tweeted about it today about Hillsdale College. Um, Mm, And it's funny because I thought UATX was going to be the new beacon. But something about the secular nature probably of UATX pushes it in another direction. I'd love to talk to you about this. But I've noticed Hillsdale a strange alliance with them. I went to Jay Bhattacharya's talk here in Nashville, and they were very interested in talking with me because we have a common enemy, I suppose, and that common enemy is the authority of science. We don't accept capital S science as an authority. We accept Mm. experimentation as the arbiter of truth, and they accept God as the arbiter of truth. Either way, Mm. this, you know, techno-fascist entity that we're entering into we can both agree that we don't want it. And so I think there's an interesting partnership happening with conservatives and scientists who are still interested in falsification. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so tell me about UATX and, and what you think about Hillsdale. And Yeah, I don't, I don't know very much about Hillsdale, but it's consistent with what you've just said, uh, that mm-hmm. it seems like a promising, and if you were to have described it to me 10 years ago, I would have said surprising, you know, mm-hmm. beacon haven of of free thought and free speech. I no longer find it that surprising for exactly right. the reasons we've just talked about. UATX, University of Austin, was, you know, gosh, you know, it, it was the brainchild of just a few people just a few years ago. And there were six of us in a day-long conversation in Austin in, it's going to be 2021. And I am so hopeful that it actually does what it's trying to do. It it wants to be it wants to be a, an elite institution of higher ed that escapes many of the problems of modern higher education. I have 
And so I was on the board of trustees. I was one of the founding, founding trustees from that initial conversation. And I have, you know, I have great respect for all of the people still involved. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know all of them still involved, but all the trustees and, and the others who I know still there. But I resigned from my position and from my affiliation with it at the end of 2022 and posted my resignation letter as I told them I would onto my Substack, So it's publicly available. And it was really, it was two broad issues that I was having with it, which were pedagogical on one hand, its, it's relationship with science on the other. And I think, you know, as I said, either in my letter or in the preamble to, to my letter that I posted, it was, it was joked about in that initial meeting that I was the token liberal in attendance. And that didn't actually seem to matter. Right. But what did end up mattering was that I, w I seemed to have been the token scientist. And there was just not an understanding of science and sufficient among the other people involved to consistently and persistently empower it and raise it to the level that it needs to be at if you're going to create a liberal arts and sciences institution in the 21st century. And I don't, it wasn't antipathy towards science. It was sort of a neutral stance that didn't understand it, and that it's, it's exactly the same conflation, frankly, that many, you know, that the, the coastal elites who listen to NPR and watch CNN and read the New York Times, and boy, was I among those, right? Until, you know, I, I would have identified as one of those people until very recently. It's the same conflation that they're making during COVID as I think many of these, many of the people affiliated with the University of Austin are, which is that, well, to do science, you need big grants. You need a lot of instrumentation. You need, you know, grants administrators, like, we're not going to do that. And I would say, that's fine. Let's do small s science. Like, let's do the science that you can do by going outside. That's the kind of science I do anyway. Like, let's teach undergraduates how to actually think scientifically and how to see pattern, discover pattern, interpret pattern, hypothesize what that pattern might mean, figure out what the experiment or the set of careful observations might be to determine if that hypothesis is falsifiable. And if you can falsify it, teach them the analytics, teach them the stats if that's what you need to do, teach them whatever else you will need to do to analyze it, teach them how to do literature review, teach them how to prepare talks and give good talks, teach them how to write good papers. And I did that as a professor at a you know very non-elite institution for students who had not all of them but many of them had you know just none of the privileges that you would expect it, it is possible and i did it mm -hmm. without big budgets at all and mm -hmm. i kept pushing for this and in the moment it would seem like yes that's that's important but then sort of out of sight out of mind as the sole voice pushing for actual science it got disappeared and so similarly, on the pedagogical front, which pedagogy is one of these words that if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, I will never use that word. But, you know, with regard, <laughs> with regard to like, how is it that you teach? Like, what is the, the teaching environment, the educational structure, the curricular environment? What we, had, what we had going on at Evergreen was amazing in a lot of ways. And it was super broken in other ways and gameable, obviously. But being able to spend time in depth with students so that you really got to know them. And so that by, you know, week three, you'd broken bread together and sat around a campfire. And now you were back in the classroom or the lab or doing field work or whatever, but it was back on campus. But you knew everyone enough that, and I, you know, I already made reference to this, when there was disagreement, when they got something wrong, or when I got something wrong, we, we had enough trust already built to be able to say, nope, 
here's why. Or I don't think so, maybe, but how did you get there? And instead of feeling, you know, back on their heels, like, oh God, why is she asking me how I got here? They could say, oh, okay, this is about an honest and scientific exploration of what is true. Let's try to figure it out. That's our goal here. So the curricular structure put in place at University of Austin was too standard to allow that. Mm-hmm. And again, in, you know, in conversations, I, it was, I was never told, no, we won't do that. It just, it just never happened. And so it felt like there was too much push, frankly. And again, I, I think I've, I've said this. The focus was on scraping the woke off the top, right? Like getting right. rid of the very modern diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff that is a problem for sure. And it's getting in the way of free inquiry and free speech and all of that, but it's not sufficient. It's not going to be sufficient to create an actually terrific, like really fantastic modern university. Right. Yeah. I mean, I loved your, what you wrote about it. And actually that was when I first emailed you, I think. And I was like, no, I need Mm. to know. I need to know why, because I think that was before I even realized what Hillsdale was up to. And I had such hopes for UATX and I think I agree with you on the way we need to be teaching people stuff. It's not sexy, though. It's not, like you said, big grant money. It, it doesn't have that appeal. It's kind of teaching. It's, it's kind of like a weakest link approach to say, like, we want to bring everybody from the bottom up to have better scientific understanding. And I think it's, it's grounded in this. It's an elitist kind of a nature. It's a Hobbesian nature, I think, too, to believe that people are not really capable and and they're, I mean, and they are, I just, I've been teaching people philosophy. I've been not even teaching. I literally, I was reading, I started reading the structure of scientific revolutions on TikTok to people at my, like over lunch. Cause I wanted to read the book and I'm like, oh, it's dry. Let me read it aloud. And I have like That's a little great. following on TikTok that wants yeah. to learn philosophy of science. And I'm just, a, and we're learning it together. And there's no, I, I'm holier than thou. I'm more well-read than thou. And I think that's the only way to do it is really to kind of be in the trenches with people and to risk being wrong and say, well, I don't know what they mean by that. Or I don't know if I agree with that. And then later, like you say, with what you do is you kind of come back and go, you know what? I used to think that. And then I read something else or I actually considered this new perspective. But in this snapshot world that we live in, where they want these little bites fed to you, all the bites have to be correct and all the bites have to be amplifiable. And I just don't, I don't see that working for the modern institution. And I don't see it working in general. And I, I'm going to throw something out there. And I wonder what you think about this. But I started this podcast because I don't think that kind of education is going to be possible at the university level any longer. I unfortunately am coming to this perspective. And it is, it makes me very sad. It makes me very, no. very sad. I have devastating. Um, I loved, I loved academia in many ways, and it was already at the point that I finished my PhD in two thousand one. My advisor and one of the other people on my committee sort of sat me down and said, "You know, this is not the world that we." And they were both close to retirement, so they were, you know, they were old guys already. You know, this is not the world that I went into in academia, and you might want to seriously consider, like you're totally capable, but this may not be the thing that you want to do because you're, there's less and less agency for faculty now and, and 
the to the degree that if if you want to spend time teaching, and I didn't at that point think that I did, but you know, if you want to spend time teaching, increasingly that's devalued, and so you don't really get to have relationships with students, and so you know, what's the value there? And I, you know, unfortunately, I think they were they were prescient, and things have gone off the rails in many ways that I don't think anyone saw all of it. One one thing you said, I wanted to say, I was. I think if I had not taught at Evergreen for 16 years, 15 years, whatever it was, I would have just continued on with my sort of thought, which is the kinds of things I hear from people, which is that, yeah, most people just can't do it. You know, I was I was kind of a misanthrope. Like, I really just didn't think very mm -hmm. highly of most people. And I far preferred to go spend time alone in nature. I mean, I, I still do. but But it was in part because I rejected humanity largely because I had not seen that much to impress me. And my students at Evergreen cured me of my misanthropy, or at least I thought they had cured me and I feel like it's creeping back now. But my, <laughs> my teaching at Evergreen, I realized like just maybe two years in, three years in, it's like, wait a minute, I actually am interacting with my students. Every, I wouldn't know how to walk into a classroom, especially as intimate as these classrooms are. If you're teaching alone, it's 25 students. You have them for you know many, many, many hours a week. They're full-time programs for 10 weeks or two quarters or the entire academic year. So you really know them well. And if I walked in there and right away had in my head, like, well, half these kids aren't going to be able to do anything. I don't know. I just don't know how I would do it. Like I, When I'm interacting with a room of 25 people and I'm looking at them and I'm looking into all of their eyes, I have to assume. That they're, I, I know that they're all real human beings, which is not something that many faculty assume of their students. But I also just have to assume, you know what, you're here for some reason that brought you here. You want to be here. And let's see what you can do with it. Like, let's see how I can help you make the most out of this situation. And it was the very rare student, like actually very rare student about whom I felt like, I think that was a waste of time for both of us. Like, I just don't mm. think we got anywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not claiming that everyone got to the same place. I'm not saying that everyone is equally capable. Like that's that that is not at all my claim, but I do feel like people on the right, you know, pe conservatives will hear what I'm saying and say, "Oh, you sound sounds socialist." And you know, people on the left will say, "No, everyone's equally capable." Like that, neither of these things is right. Right? Like actually right. you can reach almost everyone if you actually try to know what you know well enough to be able to communicate it clearly and then give them the tools with which to discover things of their own, as opposed to keep the tools to yourself because you kind of like the power of only being able to dribble out bits and pieces, which unfortunately mm -hmm. I think part of what is going on with a lot of teaching. So will it be possible to keep doing that in higher ed? Not with the current models. I don't think so, unfortunately. I think you're right. Well, and students seem like such a burden to professors on, I mean, I don't know about in your field, but in, yes. in mine, you know, I don't know what classes you taught, but it, it did seem like we were a burden to a lot of, you know, a lot of these people. And then there was a few, when I went to undergrad, they were like, oh, be a doctor. You're smart. You're second in your class, be a doctor. I'm like, oh, okay. I like cutting stuff up. So mm -hmm. I started, <laughs> I started in like bio 101 and I had a professor who studied Cape ground squirrels. And she was like, I need someone in my lab to help dissect squirrel poop. And I was like, uh, what? Yes. Can I do that? And we, you know, we were looking for hormones in the squirrel poop. And I had a few really great professors that were so enamored with their research, communicating that with students. 
that I thought, I don't want to be this kind of professor. This is really something. And what I didn't see was behind that, the R1, let's call it a spider web, I guess, because I don't even know what else it is, but that they, that they get stuck in, that they're fighting against and all their passion kind of gets sucked away. And, and not only that, but the, I think the other thing that's killing this kind of instruction is the careerism of not mm-hmm. only the professors, but the students that I have to learn this because X, Y, and Z. I need to read Atomic Habits so I get, I can mm-hmm. optimize, optimize, optimize. And it's like, how do I explain why you need to learn philosophy? I, I, I don't know how to tangibilize that for people. And I think doing so causes a problem. Like we should not be necessarily trying to turn everything into concrete bullet points that you can just gobble up. They're meant to be savored. So that's going to yeah. require people wanting to do it on their own and outside of a place where they pay thousands of dollars to get a check mark. I, I agree with everything you just said. And I think, you know, what <laughs> remarkable actually, but yeah, I agree with everything you just said. And one of the things it, it just reinforces for me is my loathing for applying metrics to everything imagining and you know and this again is a misunderstanding of science right some Mm -hmm. some science the science that is most easily communicated to a public that doesn't think they can do science or doesn't have the time doesn't want to whatever involves reductionism and Mm -hmm. making metrics out of the things that you've reduced okay let's let's see this complex system what can i measure Ah, i'm going to measure that and then i'm going to make a graph that's kind of appealing visually i'm going to trot that out to the public without ever questioning, is the thing that was most easily measured the right thing to measure about the system? Like, what is the truth that you know about the system? It may well not be the thing that you measured. And there's no, there's exactly zero reason philosophically, I would think, to imagine that the thing that is most easily measured about a system is the most important thing about a system. Like that, that actually, I think, is almost axiomatic in the modern scientific paradigm. If you can measure it easily, then it must be the thing we should be talking about. No, not necessarily at all. Right. And so, you know, one of one of my key, one of the words that I specifically use with my students on my study abroad programs, where, you know, I never did study abroad with students I didn't know. I'd already, I'd always already spent ten to fifteen weeks domestically with them on a couple of domestic field trips and in the classroom. But I crafted these things very, very carefully. I architected them. You know, unfortunately, for you know. Sometimes when you're going to places deep in Ecuador or Panama, the joke, but this happened once, like I actually had to know exactly where we were, where 26 people were going to be having lunch 18 months in advance, right? Like it was that level of planning. (laughs) But I did that so that we would definitely have a place to sleep every night, right? And so that I could get us into these deep field stations in remote nature. I did that specifically so that the framing, so that the architecture I knew and therefore they knew was robust and so within that, there was maximal freedom for, and here's the word that I love maybe most, serendipity, right? So I don't know what we're going to find. I don't know what we're going to discover. That's the wonder of it. If I already knew, yeah, maybe I still want to go see one of the 10 species of monkeys or all of the 10 species of monkeys at Tipitini in the eastern, eastern Ecuador in the most biodiverse spot on earth in the Amazon. But it's not about checking it off a list. It's how do, you, how do you discover how to find those monkeys? How do you discover how to find 
one of the five species of cats, right? Or maybe your interest when you once you get there is actually I'm super focused on the macro and I've had students like this. Like they thought they were going to be into the charismatic megafauna because we all kind of are, but they would just be focused on these little tiny plants that you actually need to get out your like your hand lens to see into and the just like the fractal nature of the complexity in these plants in the Amazon is extraordinary and not just the Amazon, the Paramo, the Scablands of Washington, the San Juan Islands, where I also took students and where I now live, like, and in just in your own backyard, right? Like the discovery that you can, that you can make, the discoveries that you can make if you slow down and say, actually, this part isn't scheduled. This isn't, mm-hmm. I, no, it's not at 9.10, we need to be doing this next thing. There's going to be time for that. Like, we're going to have lectures. I'm going to teach you statistics. Like, we're, we're going to do some of that. But we have to leave some time and preferably a lot of time for, I don't know what's going to happen now. But unless you sit there with a bag of chips and a remote in your hand or, you know, screen or whatever, wasting all of that time, if you go out into the world and actually expose yourself to something you haven't exposed yourself to before, you'll discover something new. And then you start applying scientific thinking and the evolutionary lens to what you're seeing and voila like so thus you are educated like that's part of the process of how it happens and it can't be done by scheduling everything and doing everything with bullet points just as you said no i mean and and the things that i remember from those magical undergrad moments were you know i got chills when you're talking about it because i just feel i feel that feeling that i felt you know and it's such a rare feeling but but you're absolutely right i remember the funny moments when things happened that were completely unexpected. Like we had a cadaver that I was dissecting in grad school. We had so many problems with her. You know, unfortunately, the poor thing, she died of diabetes, but she had a stint. She was missing a leg. Her, it looked like she had vitiligo. And we found a bullet in her. It, I mean, it was just, but these are <laughs> things that, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. You know, and then we did a research project where we, I counted the the branches of the vagus nerve and all the cadavers. And like that was the worst part of it was checking off all the boxes, the the discovery in a sense, the questioning, the asking, the difficulties. Those were all the parts in everything I've ever learned that I remember and create something that Adam Mastriani, he, he writes experimental history. I don't know if you read it or not, but he calls the vibe of your educational experience. And yeah, and I, I can I feel the vibe. I mean, I the the thing that I taught sometimes so the, the, the two large branches of things that I taught, and I did other things as well, were animal behavior, which is broadly like microevolutionary understanding of how organisms, why organisms are doing what they do, and then vertebrate evolution, which is the macroevolution, the systematics, the phylogeny. And because until the molecular revolution, as you well know, at, you know, at this point, most phylogenies, most phylogenetic reconstructions are being done with molecular data, but it was always morphological data until until then. And so you've got sort of this development and anatomy as the ways in to infer history. And so I used Mm -hmm. to teach comparative anatomy labs as part of my vertebrate evolution syllabus, because again, these were full-time programs. And so if I'm teaching 16 credits worth of of material to students every single quarter, but it's all the same students, right? Like, so like, I'm going to craft, like, I'm going to have computer labs to teach them how to like, you know, what a good character set, what a good data set looks like and how to then infer history, depending on various assumptions that you do or don't make. And I'm also going to teach them the theory. And I'm also going to teach them comparative anatomy labs, as it turns out, because that was a way into the morphology. And at first, I was 
mostly inheriting what I had learned from when I taught that in graduate school. And I, I never actually took anatomy. I, I learned it through teaching it in grad school because it was one of the things I was assigned to do. And I liked it enough. But it was very rote, as you say, right? Like, okay, how many branches? Like, okay, what are the 12 cranial nerves? Like, okay, let's just go through it. And I didn't care much. And, you know, as you might imagine, given that I was super enthusiastic about and knew my students really well, most of what I was teaching at the point that I got to stuff that I'm teaching them, I don't really care. And most of them are not going to become doctors. And we're doing sharks and cats too. So even if they are going to become doctors, they're not going to run into another shark or a cat. And you don't need to know exactly what's going on there. So with the exception of like my one or two students a year, maybe who were like pre-vet, like this was not going to be directly applicable to what they were doing. It was much more about like, how do we think about this? Like, what is the philosophy of what we are doing? And so the kinds of questions, like, yes, I did lab practicals, and yes, it was most of the students' least favorite part, and kind of mine too, but the questions that I would ask them would not just be like, okay, name this muscle and tell me the homology in a shark. Like, name this muscle in the cat that's pinned and tell me the homology in a shark, but also, you know, in another mammal. So if I've got a muscle in a cat and, you know, if, if we know the origin and insertion point in another mammal, is that muscle going to have the same origin and insertion point? Yes, 100%. Okay, here's an artery. Is this going to have exactly the same starting and end point in another mammal or even just another individual within the same species? Not necessarily. Okay, why? Like, why do muscles not vary nearly as much? They'll vary in size, but not in precision about where they're attached, whereas the cardiovascular system has all of this flexibility in it. So let's talk about that. And so that mm -hmm. that's how I managed to try to make the comparative anatomy stuff a little bit more alive. Like, oh, as long as it gets where it needs to go, if you're a neuron or a vessel, you can get there. But a muscle doesn't work if it's not attached at exactly where it needs to be attached. So, you know, those those were the sorts of queries that I tried to have bubbling up as we had, you know, three, four hours of labs in any given section where you're just like, you're bent over a kind of smelly organism and you've got a scalpel and your lab partner maybe can't be working at the same time. And you're like, God, what do I talk about? Am I just going to like quiz her on the names of these vessels or the names of these muscles? Like, no, let's talk about what you're looking at. Like, why, mm -hmm. why are we doing sharks and cats or sometimes salamanders? Like, why those? Why, you know, why doesn't, say, a turtle make as good a model organism for understanding comparative vertebrate anatomy? So, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I could, I could go on about that forever. Maybe I should stop. No, I love it. I mean, I think this is the kind of stuff that it's really hard to convince people to be curious about it. It's really mm -hmm. hard to convince, to tell them, like, if it's not already there, that that this is absolutely fascinating. If you open it up and they don't go, whoa, interesting, what is that? If they don't have those thoughts primed, if they're already going, okay, checkbox, I got to get this, I got to get that done, it takes effort to open it for them a little bit and you have to relate it to them in some way. And that is, that's not conducive to checkboxes. It's not. And they feel like they're falling behind. Yeah, then there, there's this like got to play catch up thing. And, you know, you do have to have a solid rote knowledge to be able to make these kinds of questions. There has to be a solid base understanding. But that the base understanding is not the rationale for getting it. The rationale for getting it is, is to apply it. What, what do we do with this? What is the possibility here? And it wasn't for me in my own career until I slowed down 
even left, I left academia, I left the pharmaceutical industry even, and I said, whoa, there's so much interesting stuff around me. Like I said, I started reading philosophy of science and I had, I had been a scientist for a decade and never thought to question, you know, the normal puzzle solving activities of science because I had in my head, the only way to be a scientist is to be at an R1 university. And if I'm not there, I've failed. And I think my question for you at, with all of this being said is what, what would you recommend to Heather now, if Heather was coming up, you know, getting her PhD today, what would you tell her to do? Boy, I do not know. I don't, I don't know. Like I, I loved school and I was a good student and it was easy for me, but I don't know if even I could put up with a, gra a graduate education right now, given how broken it is. We've talked about sort of the brokenness over on like the, the business model side of it. Like, mm -hmm. and, and then most of the mentors now, you know, the, the old school guys who I learned from are retired now. And that's not to say that there aren't. I, I, I assume that there are many, many amazing scientists still working in academia, mm -hmm. but it's harder and harder for them. And there's a, this selective process wherein they're getting funneled into narrower and narrower fields, more highly specialized, conforming to whatever the university says they should do, and then add to that, you know, the, the woke stuff, the diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff, where, you know, we're not, we're not supposed to be paying most attention to what we think is true. We're supposed to be paying most attention to immutable characteristics of the people doing it. And I don't know how much discovery and joy and serendipity can happen in that environment. The market forces will want to take away the serendipity. Like, well, can you justify that time you're spending? I no, actually, not yet, and maybe never. And I know it's not it's not my job to do that. I I don't have to justify that. And that was, you know, certainly because I did my graduate work, I did my actual field work in very remote places, like literally on an island off the coast of Madagascar, mostly. You know, before the era of cell phones, and I had a sat phone that never worked, and so you know, I was just. I was showering in a waterfall and living in a tent and discovering every day new things about these poison frogs that I was Sounds that awful. no one else had looked at. <laughs> it was it was amazing. I mean, it was hard, right? Like it was it was actually you know extraordinarily challenging in in some ways, but it was also there was there were no encroachments. And another benefit of that actually of having this very very remote set of you know set of field sites that the one that I just described was the one that I spent the most time at was that. And, you know, very remote field sites in an era before, I mean, I guess this would apply even now, but an era before there was a lot of communication, about a bunch of telecoms, this is 1990s, was that when I got on the plane to Madagascar to go with my giant trunks and, you know, I, I built a solar electricity system so I could power a laptop so I could enter data and write. And, and you know, I mean, I literally had to pack all the toilet paper I would need for the entire field season. Like it was, it was that level of like, you got to be super prepared. But whatever I didn't have, I didn't have. So, right. you know, I was doing water chemistry, among other things, on the little wells in which my frogs, my frogs, were living and reproducing. And in one of my early field seasons, my pH meter broke, and I happened to have brought along pH strips. I'm like, well, oh, these are fine. Okay, from now on, I don't rely on, you know, fancy things with corrodible, you know, contacts in the rate in the jungle. I'm going to bring pH paper that I can keep totally dry by keeping in a dry bag with, you know, with, with desiccant. And so, you know, you, you learn to be completely self-sufficient 
And then the reason I'm talking about this is that the advantage on the other side is once you leave, once you get back on the plane back to the U.S., Michigan, in the case of where I was in grad school, the data is collected. Like I got what I got. I and I don't I haven't analyzed it all yet by any means, but the data are in my field books and to the degree that I was able to, you know, in the laptop. At the, you couldn't the degree hack it. So, <laughs> there's there's no possibility, right? Like it's just like it is what it is. And so if someone says to me, "Well, did you, you know, you need to go back and do X?" Like I no, I can't. Like I'm not in Madagascar now. So the like the corralling of the like either and as it turns out, I did do a good job. But if I hadn't, oh, well, then you're going to have to spend a whole other field season. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, well, that's a really big burden. I better get it right. then. And I think mm-hmm. the sense of, oh, I'm just at school. I'm just doing research. And yeah, I want it to only take five years or six years or seven years or whatever. But I can always just spend more time. It allows people to think, well, I, you know, I have I have endless time. I could just keep going. And so there's a there's a real value in having a research place that is far removed. And when you're there, you're there. And that's what you're doing. Like, you don't have any. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't spend absolutely every day collecting data and, you know, generating new hypotheses and, you know, all, and, and working on your research, what are you doing? That's not you being a good scientist. And then when you're back, no, I'm not collecting data today because I'm not actually in Madagascar. So there are. Yeah, you're making me want to do field work. <laughs> It is. Yeah, it's 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 totally different. Right. Like what are the advantages and disadvantages of lab versus field work? Right. You cannot mm-hmm. cannot control you know, when the when the typhoon came in, you know, when when the giant tropical storm came in and my field assistant and I had to like head into the hills, into the, like the cave where the the ancient Malagasy had been buried. Like, OK, this is where we just have to spend a little bit of time because <laughs> because the, the frogs, we hope they're going to be OK. But there's just no being down near the coast right now. And that usually doesn't happen in a lab. On the other hand, if I wanted to know something very, very precise and control for weather and temperature and, you know, and, and things like, for instance, the water chemistry I mentioned at the wells, like, oh, I want to see if I actually raise the pH a bit, if these guys are still going to survive. Well, I can't really do that while I'm living in, a, in the jungle, you know, living in a tent in Madagascar. Like there are questions that are just beyond what you can do in the field. And that's, you know, that's some of why, you know, lab work is valuable and can answer questions that field work can't. Well, I think what you're touching on is like variety rather than this kind of, I I don't want to call it a scientific monoculture, but that's the only thing I can think of that's happening. And I was listening to one of your episodes of Dark Horse where you guys were talking about that compound appealed, uh, the diglyceride stuff they're putting on stuff now. Once, and this is a little Ted Kaczynski of me, but it's like once we cross over this threshold, there's no going back. You have to have a car now. You know, you'll have, I mean, you can't really go back to the time when we didn't have satellites and you couldn't have called somebody to get something or, you know, there's something that's like, you know, the rising tide that brings up all ships. It kind of sucks because you can't really go back to whatever that was. You have to, we have to like do everything while the tide is low. And I don't really know how to get around that except to say that the principle of biodiversity, I think, is a conciliant idea. This is why we're, we consider ourselves liberals, because we do believe and value true diversity. And I think that's applicable to everything. When I think about funding sources, when I think about types of education, when I think about types of scientific research, a diverse 
smattering of things that can be done is is better than a monoculture. Absolutely. I mean, maybe you wouldn't tell young Heather to go start a podcast because she would be like me and not, you know, have some media storm behind her. Not yet. I haven't come up with one yet. Um, <laughs> maybe you wouldn't tell her to do that because she'd be, you know, kind of starting at a disadvantage. But you might tell her to just do what she loves and kind of let it follow, you know, that I don't know, because I mean, isn't that what you've done all along? You know, that's interesting. Yeah. At, at some level, exactly right. You know, when, when I was very little, there were a few other things that I thought I was going to be not entirely emerging from my passion. Like I, I trained as a classical pianist for many, many years. And I feel like, I feel like the classical musical train, classical music training kind of broke me in a lot of ways, but boy, did it help me develop habit. I mean, I, I got up every morning at 5.30 to practice for an hour before school, and I practiced for an hour after school for most of my childhood. And then I was, I was 14 at the point that I said to my parents, you know, I'm not, this is not what I'm going to do. Like, this is not, this is not my life. And I was having to make these decisions that weren't really mine, where I was being told, well, you can't go play sports because you might damage your precious hands. And I was like, you know, I actually think I value sports more than I value my precious hands with regard to never risking breaking a finger. But I, but I loved the music theory and I loved the math and the music theory. And my dad was a mathematician. Yeah, she was a computer scientist. So he started taking me to math competitions. And I was like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that. But the thing that really came early and that I think has been the thread throughout all of it was, was my love of words. So I, I wanted I wanted to be a writer from a fairly young age and specifically began college wanting to be a science fiction writer and found in the study of literature too much emphasis, honestly, even this would have been the late 80s, too much emphasis on like on the personality of the author and on on bits of the story that didn't matter to me. Like I wanted to tell true stories and I came to understand how important it was to actually have lived an interesting enough life that you had stories to tell. And so, you know, went into science where I, you know, I had always, always loved watching animals and had been as used to be all young people were looking for meaning, right? I've been trying, I've been looking for meaning and sort of dabbled in Buddhism and been trying to figure out what what made sense of it all. And it was a Dawkins book, actually, that Brett gave me right as we were beginning to to date halfway through college that sort of opened it up for me. And yeah, through from each of these choices has been not a eye on the prize, like I'm going to become a X in the future, but does this feel like a way forward that is honest and has integrity and in which both my day-to-day -day and my lifelong, the differences I will be making are ones that feel valuable both to me and to, and to the planet and to the people who I'm interacting with. So I don't, mostly, I don't want to be podcasting. And I don't, I, and I, I say this to Brett a lot, like, I, you, know, you know that this is not what I want to be doing, right? I want to be alone in nature and writing and sending my words out into the world that way. But it is clear from our audience, from the people who contact us, and from people who stop us on the street, even now, like we've moved to an island now, but especially when we travel and are anywhere with more people, that what we're doing is so valuable to so many people that 
I keep doing this, even though this is maybe the first time in my life where I find a lot of my day-to-day stuff that isn't exactly what I would choose to be doing. Like, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather be outside. I'd rather be outside. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's difficult to be, because you're talking about impact. You know, if you're having an impact, that might be important. And, and I find it interesting because, you know, I think about Socrates and how we never read anything of Socrates it's because he placed so much value on conversation. And I, I love your writing, by the way. I was reading your Substack this morning and your story about the male arguments over real estate. And I thought to myself, it's so funny. I have almost everybody that comes on this podcast is a writer in some capacity because I think I am, I I mean, I'm a writer as well. And there's something emotional between writers that you just, you get a sense for them. And so I understand your, your desire to spend time writing and spend time alone. But sometimes I think you do have to do what calls you and what, what the world needs at times. But I love that you're still making time and effort to do this. And I'm wondering, I was going to ask you if you write fiction, because it it seems like you might have a propensity for it. Yeah, the literally the year that Evergreen blew up, the last two quarters before it blew up, I was on the first sabbatical I ever had, because Evergreen had a lot of perks, but the, you know, the sabbatical and other benefits for faculty, monetary benefits were not among them. So after 14 years, I got a couple quarters of sabbatical. And... I wrote a science fiction novel, and it's it had been something that I had had in mind for a while, and I'd fully drafted it. In fact, I got through the second draft, literally finished the second draft the day that the mob showed up at Brett's door on May 23rd, 2017, and I really want to go back to it. I think it needs, I think, I think it will look dated at this point, but there's a central, there's a central question. Well, the, the central question is, is there other consciousness in the in the galaxy and what would we do at the point that we found it and i'm not going to give away the answer that that i write into this book but what i wanted to do was and this is something that i began to write into like you know pitch letters again many years ago now this is this is dated but was a lot of science fiction gets the physics right but very often it gets the biology wrong like most mm-hmm. most science fiction you know, I get it when it's in Hollywood, when it's, you know, when it's visual media, it's like you got to put a person in an alien suit. And so it's going to be kind of an, a human model. It's going to be bipedal and, you know, fructation and, you know, bilateral symmetry and you know, all of this. But boy, there are a lot of ways for life to evolve, even on this planet, even intelligent life on this planet. And so what are some of the other ways, especially with a different type of star, with a different, you know, with a slightly different periodicity, you know, it's still going to be in like our Goldilocks zone if we can, if we can be there and be interacting with it. But how different might sentient life be that we might miss it? Like what, 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 how different would it have to be before we didn't even recognize that we were among other organisms that were thinking deeply and carefully? And, you know, we have, I think we have a few you know, examples of this here, like at this point, we feel like, well, we've always known that dolphins and elephants and, you know, wolves are, you know, so, and parrots are, and crows are so smart and like, well, not for very long. And, you know, we haven't actually really grokked that for as long as we imagine we have. So, you know, and not to mention cephalopods, like, you know, what is going right. on with octopus and squid? We don't know. We just know that they are incredibly yeah. capable of solving puzzles. The Arrival was a great film in that respect because they they did go a little bit outside of the box. But I think there's still a lot of room for 
you know, taking our own element out of it and opening our eyes to something a little bit outside of what we might expect. And the only thing that I think might be dated, the only thing I could think of that would be dated between now and then would be what's going on with artificial intelligence. Huh. Yeah. Because yep. yeah. that's going to be, you know, if we survive this one, that's going to be, who knows? I mean, knows? I don't even know if I can wager a guess. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's where I am. That's, you know, that's, it does feel like event horizon and I don't, I'm trying to look like, nope, can't see. I don't know. No. I don't know. No, we're, we're going to have to get spaghettified, I think. So one thing I wanted to ask you, speaking of getting spaghettified, what do you think is kind of like the best criticism you've received during this time and the worst? During this, during like during COVID, during Dark Horse? I mean, that, yeah, during your, yeah, during Dark Horse probably. Yeah. You know, I feel like there are criticisms that could have come that didn't come. I, the, the, the people who were criticizing us were large. In fact, this is something I said on air at some point. I was just, I was laughing, but I was also frustrated. And what I said was, we need better skeptics. Like the, the stuff <laughs> that's coming at us just doesn't, doesn't, it's just you're racist. So, <laughs> yeah. And you're racist. And, you know, like, but even, you know, oh, well, I mean, you mentioned one of these, like, oh, yeah, you're killing people by suggesting people take ivermectin. It's like, you know, just look into what that drug is, even if it was ineffective, which, you know, the evidence is it's not against against this virus or many other viruses, but it's not dangerous. Like it's like it's it's not that kind of a drug, and so there there were just these like it was like people took up random random strings of words and kind of lobbed them at us, and like science proceeds through discovery and discussion and disagreement and refinement of your ideas and. Brett and I do that with each other, right? And, you know, both on camera and off. And we would critique each other and figure out where someone was maybe not, you know, going down to the weeds or, or something. But very little that came across publicly seemed like savvy criticism. And, you know, I, there were, I'm not remembering, you know, this is a couple of years ago and a lot, a lot of water has gone to the bridge by now. But there's certainly, you know, a few things, especially early on, that we got wrong. And we corrected them. And I don't know if those necessarily came from outside, though, or our own discovery. You know, I think, I think, for instance, we were wrong on masks. And we were, we were, we were both masking early here, not here, but in Portland, and, and did not really understand what the history of the research was. It was one of these things that just seemed like, well, it, it seems like it would make sense that this is what you do to, to block transmission of this kind of virus. And the evidence now that I can see suggests that that's probably not the case. Mm -hmm. But I think I got a, I got a critique in grad school that I, I think would be relevant here, but I haven't heard it. And maybe I haven't heard it because Brett and I are always here together. I was working with a postdoc. He was writing some code for me so I could run my data through some resampling statistics. And he was, you know, he was not a field guy. I mean, he did some field work, but mostly he was a, he was a computer biology scientist. And he was a little bit taken aback by my independence. Like I just, I, I was always going off on my own and, and doing things and coming back with, you know, my own interpretation, my own analysis. Be like, like, who are your collaborators? You're going to have to start collaborating with people. And I think at that point, while well, I mentioned that I'd been something of a misanthropist, my sense was I collaborate with people and then they'll do something that's wrong and then I have to fix it. And it's just, it's just easier if I do it myself. 
but I, but I heard him because I was collaborating with him and he was like, you see that this is working. Like you're getting more, like, you don't know how to write this code. Like we're doing stuff together here that is effective and, you know, you should find the collaborative partners more. And, you know, I certainly, I have one in my life partner, right? You know, I, I have some others, but I think my extreme, pretty extreme introversion, like I love people now, but I need a lot of time away from them. And if there's a lot of other chaos in my life where I'm having to manage, you know, people and systems and finances and you know, all of this stuff associated with, oh, you're an entrepreneur now. I didn't see that coming. Then I respond <laughs> by sort of going like, okay, then for the rest of it, for like my creative and analytical and scientific part, I am once again going to um, revert to being entirely alone. And I think there would be benefits to having more people with whom I am in active conversation about some of some of what I'm thinking about scientifically, but I can't, I often can't bring myself to do it. I love that. I actually really like that criticism. I think it's going to, I think it matches up with the only thing I could really come up with as to why people feel so strongly about the things that you say. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because you and Brett are kind of, you know, not to psychoanalyze, but you've kind of created this little like shell of yourselves that is protective and you can bounce scientific ideas off each other. So there, you know, there is no, no reason to reach outside and science is built on refutation. And so if there's no one around to refute your conjecture, except the two of you who agree a lot, that is probably the biggest criticism, you know, well, you could have. He um, doesn't have this problem though. He has different problems. Um, but he doesn't, <laughs> he, he doesn't, so he, he does, he is in conversation with, I would say too many people, honestly. So it's almost like, so we are, we are sort okay. of at extremes in terms of like the input that we're getting. And, and it's not that we like, we, again, I keep on thinking like we need better skeptics and you know, someone, Alexandros Marinos, who we didn't know at the time heard that and said, oh, okay, I'm going to create a better skeptics thing. And I don't remember all the specifics, but he basically set up a like, okay, here's like the eight episodes that you guys have done or Brett has done with guests that people think are rife with errors. And let's get this panel of neutral judges and, you know, figure out where all the errors were. And, you know, it turns out there were one or two trivial errors. And it, like it was, you know, <laughs> the thing is that we're like, we are careful and we, right. we try very hard to distinguish between this is what I strongly believe is true and here's why. And this, I think, is probably true, but I'm not sure. And hmm, I have this hunch, like, I kind of think this thing, but I don't even know mm -hmm. why. Like, I don't know what my evidence is, but just know that I'm thinking about that. And the thing is, we are willing to say all of those things, which right. is, and like, I believe that we are actually always very careful about, and, you know, I don't think of those as like three distinct categories, but like, to the degree that there's a continuum from, yeah, you know what, I would be shocked if evidence came in suggesting that we are brains in jars or that like evolution is not what explains life on earth, right? All the way to, huh, I actually kind of think that being barefoot on the earth on the place where you are may help in train circadian rhythms. I think that's true. And I think there's actually a bit of scientific evidence for that. But I, that, is, that is one of these ideas that I have that is beginning to be studied scientifically, but it feels kind of woo and kind of like, I just have yeah. this sense that I feel better when I do that. And other yeah. people do too, but I don't know. I don't know for sure, right? So there's a big gap between those things, and right. uh, and I think it's again a problem. I think I think that that's a virtue, 
And that the other thing where you only say things with 100% certainty is the problem. Which because, they don't have, by the way. Which you, like, you can't have. So, it's, so it's, it's pretense. And it makes people come to expect, well, either you're certain or you're not. It's like, no, no, not either you're certain or you're no. not. Not at all. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Because I had people asking me, like, I had two people ask me about to ask you about terrain theory. Well, I asked them specifically, like, what should I ask her about that she said about terrain theory? Like, I don't know. It was just a vibe I got. And I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, because exactly what you said, they'll say stuff, but you miss the caveat in the beginning or at the end. It's like, well, I'm not sure. And people think when you throw that caveat at the beginning or the end, it's a way to say stuff that's inflammatory and still back away from it. But I disagree entirely. I think yeah. wherever you throw your caveat in, it should adequately explain how you think and feel about the subject. And we don't, we're not comfortable with probabilistic thinking. We're not comfortable hearing people say, I really think this, I'm not sure about that. We are not accustomed to listening for gradations. We wanna know, and especially in podcasting, like I said, they want an amplifiable, discrete snippet to turn into a soundbite, like I will do to this one right here, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's no, what I'm looking for. Boy, so I'll say something about terrain theory in a second. But one of the things that we did with our, our boys, so we've got a 19 and a 17 year old, both sons. And the older one, who's also our producer, was was definitely like in his head from the very beginning. He was like born 30 years old. And he like definitely had ideas about stuff. And early on, he would say, well, you know, when he was like 8, 10, 12, like, I know that X is true. And we would say, with what degree of certainty? Like, 100%. I don't think so. And so it was this training of like, no, I actually want you. Like, and this is, this is an obvious role of a parent with a child, right? Like, no, it's actually important for me to teach you how to understand how certain you are. Because if you really think that certainty is a binary that is not going to serve you well in the world. And you're not going to be able to make sense of the world because almost almost never do you have a binary with regard to certainty. And so, yes, you're going to be making these numbers up, but start giving me numbers less than 100% when I ask you how certain you are mm -hmm. about something. And boy, that was one of the most useful sort of parenting tricks that we that we did, I think. Like he just matured so fast with regard to his ability to make sense of things that were incoming and that he was trying to process and like match with apparently inconsistent things. So yeah, the, the desire for certainty and the responding to lack of certainty as if, oh, you're just hedging. Oh, you're just giving yourself an excuse. Oh, you're just covering in order to be inflammatory. This feels to me like, what is the other? Oh, I'm, I've been called a contrarian. Like, and oh, I, yeah. I love that I can say I'm not a contrarian because that sounds like obviously I am. Pretty but, contrarian. <laughs> right. But like, no, contrarian is knee-jerk negative, knee-jerk rejection. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the knee-jerk acceptance thing is, like compliant, faithful, right? Mm -hmm. It's skeptic, right? It's, right. okay, once I know you and once I come to have, you know, seen your thinking over and over and over again for a while, I will be ever less skeptical of anything you say. It's exhausting. Who wants to do that, right? But mm -hmm. I reject, I reject the idea that anyone who makes an announcement about anything needs to be 100% rejected or 100% accepted mm -hmm. without knowing anything else about them. I want to take that right. in and consider it. So like, how is right. considering it now the enemy of reason? No, it is reason, right? It's the, the, the reality is reversed. 
with regard to terrain theory, we've been getting we've been getting these questions on our we, you know, we do these Q and A's after our live streams most weeks, and we've been getting questions like, oh, you know that viruses aren't real. You know that it's terrain theory, not germ theory of disease. You know germ theory of disease is a lie. And for a long time, I was like, I don't know what these people are on about, but they're wrong. Like, I, this is just ridiculous. And I had never even heard of terrain theory. So I looked into it a little bit. And, and I see, I, 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 I really don't know much about it. But I see it as understanding a healthy system as being one mm-hmm. that is better able to fend off pathogens than one that is not a healthy system. Right. And when framed that way, I go like, okay, terrain and germ theory of disease together work together. That's what makes sense. Right. And then I made the mistake, as I think at this point, it's almost always a mistake to go into Wikipedia. Boy, you know, they've they've right slandered Brett and me for sure and a lot of other good people. But they have on their site, and I can't remember exactly where I ran into it, but their description of terrain theory is, boy, if I can, let's see if I can come up with it. They say something to, to the effect of, this is the discredited idea that your overall health has anything to do with your ability to fend off disease. And I look at that and I go, how did that sentence get written and not immediately rejected? Like the discredited idea that your health affects whether or not you can fend off disease? Like do the, do the people that who think ridiculous. they're defending... <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And I think, do the people who think they're defending germ theory of disease, which like I'm totally on board that ship... But do the people who think they're defending it against terrain theory really think that your health doesn't matter at all and all you have to do is get, you know, pathogen in, sickness out? Like we know from every disease ever, COVID included, that different people will react differently to the pathogen. That's a known. Like that's so basic. Mm-hmm. So I don't I mm-hmm. think that to some degree people are talking at cross purposes. And I, for a long time I was just rejecting terrain theory. I was like, no, I don't I want to listen to you germ theory of disease is true. So right. shut up already. Right. Same. But it's both. I mean, I think I, I, and I, again, I don't know the history of the terrain theory stuff. So I don't know exactly when it came up and how, like how they appear to be at loggerheads, but it feels to me like two true understandings of the universe that clearly interface with one another. Yeah. And I think the, the answer here is that you know, if, if the same person is coming at you with anti-germ theory, pro-terrain theory, flat earth theory, you know, all these other kind of things, reptilian uh, running, (laughs) reptiles running the government or whatever, uh, then it's kind of, it's hard to take anything. And I I just kind of shut off, right? I'm like, leave that for Michael Shermer to deal with. But, you know, there's sometimes where you kind of have to look into stuff and go, and I think this is a lot of what you're doing. And people are annoyed with it. But honestly, the only way to really move forward in life and and have confidence in what you're doing is to evaluate it for yourself. And we are so data centric now Mm. that it's like we look for the answer in data everywhere. And we have a lot of data, but I don't think we have the right frame of mind to challenge because of a lack of scientific training in general. Mm. We don't have the ability to manage this data. It's like we just have these numbers and we don't know what to do with them. And it's it's a big issue moving forward. And I think, you know, one of the things I think about a lot is like complexity theory. Are you... Are you into any of this? Have you been reading up on it at all? I have not been reading up on it recently. I, I have in the past a bit, but I'm not. It's been a while since I refreshed myself. I, I'm fascinated with it because I think we're teetering on a lot of edges in general. But 
I look at this and I, I kind of wonder what's going on over there and what part of this conjecture can we manage? And I think this is the question on everybody's mind is how can we manage the stuff we don't understand yet? Yeah. And what can we do with it? And I think this is a great general curiosity and thirst for information, mm -hmm. but we're lacking the tools to scale down the edge into the abyss. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And I wonder, you know, you said most people lack scientific understanding or training, something to that effect. And I think that's 100% true. And unfortunately, it's maybe especially true among people with degrees in science that because I know right and it's 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 tragic it is absolutely tragic and so you know you said you, you you've been doing philosophy now like you're literally reading code on tiktok it's amazing right i i was lucky i think i was predisposed anyway but my graduate advisor was inherently a philosopher of science and he and and he was a macroevolution guy. He was a phylogeny guy, deep history guy. And historical science is different from other kinds of science. Like you can't apply statistics. You can't. You don't have repeated events. You have events that are like each other, but they're not identical to each other. And so you have like you have to understand the world differently if you're talking about like what are cats and what is all the diversity within cats versus like oh there's a cat-like thing that separately evolved over in Australia what is cat-likeness? Like that, that is sort of like mm -hmm. a microevolutionary question that allows you, like that's at the level of adaptation on microevolution. But if you're doing just the history, it's like, what is the nature of cat? And is it the same as mm -hmm. the nature of gold? It's not. Like a gold atom is going to be the same everywhere in the universe, whereas a cat will not have evolved anywhere else in the universe, but there may be cat-like forms. And that's, you know, that's fascinating to me. And that was fascinating to him and so I always, every single program I ever taught, I think, almost every single program I ever taught at Evergreen began with philosophy of science. Like, how is it that we make mm -hmm. sense of truth? What's the epistemological basis for what it is that we're, we're, that we're talking about? And if you ever can't find it, you, the students, anyone, then ask. Because I am not supposed to be up here making claims on the basis of my authority. My degree doesn't make me right. Like, my experience doesn't even make me right. It may be makes me more likely to be able to see the truth when I stumble across it or to find the truth because I wasn't stumbling, but because I was focused because of the experience and the knowledge base that I already have. But the piece of paper doesn't prove I'm right. And I don't think yeah. that most people with the relevant pieces of paper actually know that. And that is, that is a big part of why we're in the mess we're in. For me, I might have found philosophy of science boring before having been a scientist. Yep. And well, and the reason why I started reading this on TikTok is because I'm like a lot of these a lot of these philosophers wrote about physics because during the time period, that's what they had. But we've had so many advances in biology that I'm like, what if I just rewrote Kuhn with biological examples and in my own language? Also, you know, thinking about these things are 50, 100, you know, 150, 200 years old now. Mm -hmm. And people aren't accustomed to reading like that anymore. And so I've kind of started down this little trajectory of reading like that. But I wonder if that would, you know, kind of whet an appetite for it, or if you have to have been in the thick of it to really get the understanding for it. If you had to have really have done all those stupid experiments and been in the cave where you were, you know, with dealing with the frogs to 
really appreciate how vital that is. I just don't know. I think, you know, it, I don't think it requires, you know, years of field work or, or, or lab work, right? But I think it does, it certainly benefits greatly from some experience. And so, you know, the, the, the thing that I wedded it with when I was teaching was, you know, a, a week really of philosophy of science, plus almost always in one of the opening days of class in a, a little thing that I learned actually in a tropical studies course, an organization for tropical studies course in Costa Rica, where called 20 questions. So you, you take students out, out into, into nature as deep as you can get them, depending on where you are. And you drop them with just a pen and paper and water somewhere where they can't see anyone else. And hopefully they're far enough away that they really feel like they're alone. And it's two hours and you promise that you will come back for them. And you do. Right? <laughs> so they're not supposed to have a clock, a phone even. You know, they're, not, they're not supposed to have anything but a way to write down what occurs to them as it begins to occur to them. And it takes people a long time just to get their brains to shut up first of all, just to be like, oh, I'm alone out here and there's no one to talk to. And oh my God, what am I going to have for dinner? And my feet hurt. And what did she say to me? And you know, like all of that. Okay. It takes a while and two hours isn't really long enough. Like you need one of these weeks long meditation retreats to get your brain to entirely be still. But the idea is right up to, you know, 20 or more or less, whatever questions about what you're perceiving and yes, you'll be po focusing a lot on what's in your head, and you can write those if you want, but I want 20 questions about what's outside of you. Anything, but, but make it outside of you. And the questions then, the, we finish that, I pick them up, they're done for the day or for the morning, and then the next time we meet, either that afternoon or the following day, we break into groups and we say, okay, within well you know, each of the four of you, share your questions and pick your two favorites from each. And then, and then, figure out how you'd figure out the answers. Like, is the question already a hypothesis or is the question bigger than that? In which case, how do you turn that into a hypothesis? Okay, now that you have a hypothesis, what are the predictions from the hypothesis? Given what you observed, what are the other possible hypotheses for what you observed? Do you have any sense of how it is that you might, now that you have all the possible alternative hypotheses for what you observed, how would you distinguish between those hypotheses? Now, that's a lot of work, and there's no way that groups of untrained undergrads in an hour and a half are going to get through, you know, even all of one of those, much less eight questions. But you begin to get experience and going like, wait, what do I have to do? I have to figure out what it might mean. I made an observation. That's true, right? Like, well, we hope so. We don't know for sure. We need to have a few other people see the same thing you saw. But let's assume for the moment that what you saw is true. Now, what do you think it means? And then... We come back together as a whole class and we start talking about some of these hypotheses and boy, people get so, so animated and they start defending. They, like, they'll, sometimes they'll stand up and be like, no, this is true. This is what I know is true. Like you realize that 24 hours ago, you would never have thought about this at all. And now you are actively, adamantly defending an idea that you just generated. <laughs> think, like, think about that. Maybe it's true. Cool. Maybe it's not also fine, but think about how not only sure you are, again, with the certainty, right, but also how emotional you are about it. Like, think about the emotional valence that has now come to back your idea of like, this, well, this is science. Like, no, that's emotion. That's different. And we're mm -hmm. humans doing mm -hmm. science, so we can't separate it entirely, but let's try. And so, like, that's the beginning of like, okay, how do we wrestle? And, you know, this is, of course, 
this is front and center when you're studying animal behavior, which is what I was often doing with these students. Like, okay, you're going to anthropomorphize because you are, because you're a human looking at the ducks or looking at the ants or looking at the moose, whatever it is. And to some degree, that's just accept it, but always recognize it when you're doing it. When you are framing what that organism is doing through a known human bias, put that down in your notes. That's, that's the way through, not, oh, I'm just going to pretend that didn't happen, but still write down what I think it was. Like, no, you got to write, like, own everything and you won't get rid of your bias. But if your bias is public and, and seeable by others so that other people can come in and say, well, I'm coming in with a different bias, so let me see what I think. Then we can begin to sort of put all these different versions together and go, okay, I think actually we're beginning to see something that's shared between all of these views on, say, you know, what the moose was doing or what the ants were doing. And, you know, it's different than doing science in the lab or than doing historical science or any numbers of other kinds of science, but the goal is the same. Let us try to figure out with our biased, subjective human brains and perceptual systems what is actually true in the universe. That's why we're doing it. And I, I think it's, that, again, this is something reading philosophy of science. Karl Popper was talking about how we can't free ourselves from bias. And it, this, you know, he used the word historicist kind of attitude that we could, that we can somehow, even declaring it, we can rid ourselves of it. And he's, well, you have it. He, wrote, he writes this line, I think it was either in Open Society or Conjectures, Refutations. He writes this line, he's like, yeah, well, how'd that work out for you? It seems <laughs> like you still have the same problem. But I remember being in grad school as a molecular biologist and my advisor was like, oh, behavior, that's soft science. You know, we don't. And it was kind of almost just dismissed because it's like it's so subjectively tainted with bias that we can't even we don't even want to get our hands dirty. And I think we really need to be getting our hands dirty, literally, figuratively. Yeah, I mean, it is it is it is harder to quantify. And it is harder to reduce mm-hmm. to its constituent parts. And there are, there are methods that are useful in studying the behavior of animals in different contexts. You know, you know, and, you know wild versus zoo is different, of course, and zoo versus lab. And you know, animal behavior is studied in all of those settings. But you don't. One of one of my one of the people on my committee, Barbara Smuts, who worked one of one of the preeminent researchers on baboons, did some work that I always have my students, my animal behavior students, read on sort of what what is worth recording like what is worth if you are out there if you're lucky enough to be watching primates they're still doing nothing most of the time right they're still just sleeping or kind of lazily picking ectoparasites off themselves most of the time but okay so you're going to be recording like foraging bouts and you're going to be doing at these regular intervals and you've got your codes and like you know exactly what the codes are and you always stay within the codes but then you also have like the descriptions of like oh and this also is happening and very often the most interesting stuff is something that happened once because it's the rare event mm-hmm. that actually is, you know, Goodall's chimps and the war that she saw between them. She saw it once. Now it went on for a little One while, time. but if we count that as sort of war, it's once. Does that mean we don't get to talk about it because it's mere anecdote? No. It means we have to remind ourselves that it's been seen once. But that doesn't mean we don't get to talk about it. Right. So it's, it's right. these these rubrics around like, well, you can only talk about that if you have a p-value of less than 0.05 and a sample size of more than 200. Like, mm, well, what is a valid sample size is going to vary depending on what the question is, what the system is. And you never obscure it. Like you never claim to have seen something eight times when you saw it once. 
or claim right. to have been looking at 30 organisms, 30 individuals, when you were actually only looking at three. You never, ever do that. But sometimes if you can only find three individuals and they're doing something that you have described carefully, you recorded carefully, and you go back and you're like, that I think means this other thing. I can't know for sure, but boy, is it fascinating. And I'm still going to report on that. And I'm not going to claim that it's replicated. I think it does replicate out there in the world, but I haven't seen it and neither has anyone else. So I don't know for sure, but still we can talk about the thing that I for sure saw. And so that, that is a place where behavior sort of slide, the study of behavior slides into a different space. And maybe, maybe having been someone who's been thinking carefully about like the philosophy of science and how you study behavior for a long time allowed me to more you know, easily say, you know what? Um, the, the requirement that we only talk about data that meets these standards, no, sorry. Like, I, you sound like you're coming from a place that has not thought about all of the variability that actually the world is made out of. Right. It's like so dried out, the science that I'm thinking of and procedural and careerist and, yeah. you know, yeah. I, 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 love, I love talking to you. I, this gives me a lot of insight into who you are and the way that you think and the way that you've been trained and the things that you've done. And, and it's really, it's really been just absolutely lovely. Like I said, you have such a great vibe and I just, I appreciate you coming on. I think you're doing great work. So well, it's been a total pleasure. And up. I'm going to go look up among other things of yours, your TikTok readings of Thomas Kuhn. That's fab fabulous. <laughs> oh my gosh. They're on live. I haven't recorded them yet. I'm okay. not, I'm moving and being brave like you and just putting all my conjecture out there. I'm moving towards that. I'll meet you there Excellent. eventually. Yeah. Excellent. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The big nerve challenge question for this episode is how could we change science education? And I use the word education loosely to uphold the values of trial and error and critical evaluation of evidence. Be sure to head over to my Substack for a link to this question and for all the show notes and much more.